Exodus chapter 19, 5 through 6, and then 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll look at those two verses this morning. By 1800, there were 700,000 African slaves in America. Beginning with Gabriel Prosser, who was a slave who attempted to lead a rebellion in Virginia until 1800, starting in 1800, until decades later there was a fight for freedom that raged on in America. In 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected president. That same year, South Carolina succeeded from the Union. The next year, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas, North Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia succeeded as well. From 1861 to 1865, the Civil War was fought. On February 1st, 1865, Abraham Lincoln ratified the 13th Amendment to the Constitution outlawing slavery in America. Two months later, Lincoln was assassinated. Just because the amendment was ratified doesn't mean that everything just changed in America overnight. Even though, even for the slaves that were released, and even though the law in America had changed, there were serious psychological challenges that they faced in order to make an adjustment from slavery to freedom. Just because a law is passed that says you're free doesn't mean you're, you're free. Just because, just because the person that owns you says, the law says I have to release you and you've got to leave, it doesn't mean you're free. I was curious about this, so I did a little research on the internet about the psychology of slavery. We, we've heard what happens to a person physically. We know that a person's bound against their will. But what happens to a person emotionally? What happens to a person psychologically? When a person has been physically bound, how, what impact does it make on their mind? What impact does it make on their emotions? And not just that, what I really looked at was, what happens to a person psychologically when they move from bondage to freedom? What's the change that has to take place? There's a few things that I found. In the psychology of slavery, it always involves manipulation. The concept or the misconception about a slave is it's a person who's held by chains, because we've seen movies, we think this is the way it works. And if they had one shot, they would run away if they could. I mean, I mean, they would leave and they would run away if they had one second chance. The only thing is that's not reality. As slavery's been studied around the world in dozens of cultures, a few Things have become clear. A few common threads have been found. Here's one of them. Most often, the slave himself realizes that slavery is illegal. It's illegal and they know it's illegal. But force and violence and psychological manipulation have convinced them to accept it. When slaves begin to accept their role and their identity with their owner, constant physical bondage isn't necessary anymore. Because the slave, even though they know it's wrong, even though they know it's against the law, they somehow have begun to accept it as part of the broken, dysfunctional, normal scheme of their life. They lose hope. Can you imagine the, the mental torture and degradation of slavery? 
I think if all of us were honest in this room, that all of us would have to admit, we probably can't understand it. We can't possibly imagine it. Can you imagine one day the law just being ratified and the whole country changing overnight and what was wrong yesterday, what was right yesterday is wrong today and, and you were in bondage to a certain situation and now somebody comes and tells you, hey, you're free. Free to what? Free to do what? Free to go where? Free from ownership, free from abuse, free from bondage, but free to what? Free to walk down an empty road? With nowhere to go and nothing to eat and no opportunity? Maybe free from more than free to anything. Certainly not free from memories. And isn't that the worst part? What about the mental adjustment? No one would argue that freedom's not by far superior to slavery. But freedom's not perfect. It's just not perfect. This must be the way... In the book of Exodus, that the Jews felt after 400 years of slavery. 400 years of slavery. No one could remember or ever had a relative who could remember. Anyone in their life who had ever been free. No one knew no one. Who could remember anybody who had ever been free? No one could remember what it was like to live in to live in freedom, to live in their own hometown. No one could remember what it was like to be Jewish. They had been held down under the tyrannical hand of Egypt doing hard labor for generations. And all their life they had been told, one day we're going to be free. One day God's going to send a deliverer. One day we're going to bust out of this thing. But nobody knew when. Can you imagine? I don't think, I can't imagine. I doubt you can imagine. Can you imagine what it's like to walk through life as a second class citizen? Knowing that you're always relegated to the worst? Or worse than that, no citizen at all. Finally, Moses arrives on the scene. He leads them out of bondage through the desert. They're living on what appears to be the thin, daily Manna that dropped from heaven and would feed them while they're in the wilderness. They had only shaken the dust off their feet out of Egypt for three months. And now they've arrived at Mount Sinai, the mountain of the Lord. And God wants there at that mountain to give them the law and prepare them for life when they return home. Now the word of the Lord in Exodus 19, 5 through 6 was coming to the nomads through Moses. These slaves who had only been physically free for three months, but certainly who weren't mentally free yet. What do you think God would say to these people who had lived that way? Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now if you obey me fully and keep my commands... Then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. This is the word the Lord gave to Moses to give to the people. You will be a kingdom of priests. Can you imagine what that must have sounded like to slaves? 
Are you kidding me? A kingdom of priests? They had been in slavery for 400 years. Now they're going to be priests? That would be like telling an African slave, the civil war's over, slavery's now illegal, and now you're going to be a senator or a congressman. Oh no, or president. Can you imagine how that must have hit their system? The concept of a priest was one of the most respected titles that you knew of. They didn't have a king. They didn't have a president. They had priests. And now that we're coming out of slavery, you're telling me that God wants me to be a priest? Talking about a psychological transition. Yesterday I'm making bricks with mud and straw in Egypt. And now I'm at the mountain of the Lord and the word comes through Moses to me that I'm going to be a priest? I don't even make good bricks. As you can imagine, if you'll study the children of Israel through the next several hundred years, I'm not sure they ever got it. They struggled to get it. Yet, as I look around in 21st century American church life, And I wonder if we get it. I wonder if we still got what that means. Now, during this service and during this series, I'm going to use the word priest quite a bit. Now, I don't want that to throw you off. I'm I'm familiar. Uh, Pastor Ron has spoke with me several times about the um, series that he taught on kings and priests. And and I just want to clarify this. So I, I want you to realize this is a compliment to that teaching. It's not a rearranging of it. Kings and priests says this. A king and a priest teaching is about the function of the Christian. This series is called God people. It's not about the function. It's about the access and authority of the believer. Do you see the difference? In other words, whether you're a king in the marketplace or a priest in the church, you have the same access to God and authority to do that. Do you see the difference? So it's an addition to it. Now... The Apostle Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2, flip over there real quick, 1 Peter 2, just so you don't think this is an Old Testament concept, 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10, and leave your Bible open, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, A people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. I just simply call it God people. From the very open early pages of the Bible in Exodus, it's clear that God had one desire for His people. It was to make all His people ministers. Are you here? God's desire is to make all His people ministers. The Old Testament calls it priest. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter says something what I call God people. The idea is all God's people are called to be God people. Nobody's called to nothing. There's a phrase that you've probably heard called the priesthood of all believers. And that's what we're really going to dive into in this series. It basically says this. There's no class division among Christians. There are no super Christians and then just lackey Christians. 
There are no really uh, people that fly into a phone booth and put a cape on and they're super anointed Christians and then there's just the gopher Christians. I just go for stuff. I just run errands. That's what I do in the kingdom. I'm not very important. There are no professionals. There are no professionals in the kingdom. They're just Christians. Because Jesus died on the cross for everybody. Everybody has equal access to God. You don't have to go through anybody to get to God. You can go straight to Him. If we've learned anything from the story of the prodigal son, isn't it that Jesus doesn't have any slaves? He only has sons and daughters? The son came home and said, let me just be a slave. He said, I don't have any slaves. I only have sons and daughters. Everybody stands on the same access point with God. This is the essence of the priesthood of all believers. All believers have equal access to God and can minister in the same authority. Let me give you a definition if you're taking notes. And we'll use this for five weeks. Here's what I call God people. God calls me to minister to Him in His presence. And God calls me to minister His presence to other people. I have the access to minister to God in His presence, and I have the authority to minister His presence to other people. Not, not me, I mean us. I mean all believers. I mean, I'm saying I want you to believe that. I want you to understand God wants you to believe. That's what the Bible teaches. There's nowhere that this shows up more in church history than the clergy and laity split. So let me give you a, a, a little historical background. We have adopted, not just in America, in most of the world, and not just in the 21st century, in most centuries, in most centuries, in most cultures, in most places, we've adopted a way of doing church that is secular. The thing is, we've done it so long, we think it's spiritual. But it's not spiritual. And I'm going to prove it to you. It's secular. Isn't it interesting that when you have a person in slavery, somehow, when they've been in slavery 400 years, freedom doesn't feel right? Is it also true, do you think, that we could do church a certain way for so long that it's the only kind that feels spiritual? Even if it's not the model that we have in the New Testament? Even if it's not what God's will was for us to become a kingdom of priests? It sounds like the 400-year slavery years of the Jews. The clergy laity arrangement I'm talking about was adopted in the 4th century. In the Greco-Roman world, the Greek word kleros. The Greek word kleros is where we get our word clergy from. Here's what it meant. It wasn't a church word. It wasn't a New Testament word. It was a word that was used by the secular Roman government. The Greek and Roman government. And what it meant, the kleros was a person who was a, a, a municipal administrator, um, a mayor, uh, a, t- a town organizer, a manager over a town. He was the kleros of that town. He was the administrator over that town. The laos referred to the people that the kleros ruled over. Are you getting it? The kleros ran the city. The laity were ruled over by the kleros inside the city. That's the secular language that had nothing to do with the church. The Roman Catholic Church, which we're all a part of in the 4th century, as it moved along and began to become more organized and institutional, it took on those secular terms to define and delineate the difference between a priest and a layperson. The clergy and the layperson. You with me? Are the lights going off yet? 
Do you, do you see what's happened? The church adopted this model. Why? Because the clergy became associated with the secular, I mean with the sacred, because their work was considered sacred. Everybody else became associated with the secular because their work was secular. So we allowed what we did with our hands, what we did with our minds, to backwash into the church and define who we are in Christ. Rather than working from out in, we work from in out. From out in, something like that. I got backwards. You know what I mean. Make it right on your notes. So on the spiritual chart, the people who weren't priests or didn't work for the church professionally were less spiritual because their work was secular. There was no spiritual value in it, we were told. But the priest work was sacred because they did spiritual things. So we became defined by our role. Fast forward from the 4th century to the 12th century. In the 12th century, there were now two completely different classes of Christian. The clergy who had fully devoted themselves to God and the laity who had compromised their Christian life somehow by doing temporal things like working and making money so they could eat and feed their family. Really secular stuff. Terrible stuff. But that's how the church evolved. They had compromised their life by doing things like getting married and having kids and owning possessions and, and giving in to their human frailties like hunger and thirst. So now people in the church, fast forward to the, to the 20th and 21st century, now people in the church say, I work a secular job, my pastor works a spiritual job. This is, this is the history that we come from. For 1,600 years, we've been evolving on two different tracks. The sacred and the secular. The sacred and the secular. The problem is, if the ordained ministers are sacred, then everybody else must be secular because we have no other title. We have no other way to label people. And what this has created is not a kingdom of priests, not a kingdom of God people, but of spiritual consumers. It is led, it is led into a church culture filled with spiritual consumers who are oftentimes led by dysfunctional leaders who perceive their greatest call in life is to keep the spiritual cheese line open. You still here? What I'm saying to you may be so foreign. It's one of the reasons we've been entrenching ourselves in the secular model for 1,600 years is the only one that feels right now. You hear it in people's language. Well, I want to go to a church that does this. And I want to go to a church where the pastor does this. And I want to go to the church. And I want to go to that pastor's church. And I want to go to that. And all that language is garbage. That is secular. But it feels spiritual. Because it's been in our root system for 1,600 years. Why is it when somebody introduces me as a member of the clergy that I feel like I'm a third sex? In the beginning, God created the male and female and clergy. And we're not sure what that one is. You throw the clergy grenade in the room and most people just don't know what to do with it. If you're taking notes, let me tell you what the Bible says. The word clergy, where we get our word clergy in the, in the Greek in the New Testament is the word kleros. Let me tell you what it means. It means lot 
or inheritance. It means lot or inheritance. In the New Testament, it refers to the inheritance that all Christians have in Jesus. We've hijacked the word and made it mean it's what a special class of people are or do. Inheritance. Let me show you how it's used. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read it to you. Colossians 1.12 says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints and lights. Qualified us to share in the kleros of the saints. In the clergy of the saints. Gentiles were included in inheritance. It includes all Christians. Paul said there's neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, slave nor free. To use the word clergy, scripturally, it applies to all all believers. It applies to all God's people. We've used it to designate a special group. Why? Because their occupation is sacred and ours is secular. Now let's look at the word laity for a minute. How many times have you ever heard anyone say, maybe I've heard it a lot because of what I do, but I've heard people say, you say, hey, uh... Maybe God's calling you to do this. Maybe this is what you should do. And they say, oh, no, no, no. I'm just a lay person. I'm just a lay person. No, no, no. I could never do that. I'm just a lay person. Doesn't that sound suspicious to you of something the enemy might have programmed into the fabric of the church 1,600 years ago or thousands of years ago when the, when the Jews came out of slavery and said, no, 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 I'm just a slave. Moses said, no, no, I can't go. I don't speak too good. Jeremiah said, I'm just a boy. You can't use me. Teach this class. No, no, I could never teach. I'm just a lay person. Lead this. I can't lead anything. I'm just a lay person. Where does that come from? If we have a validated role or, or a title, we tend to feel okay with that. Only if we have those things. If we don't have some certificate or degree or pedigree or qualification or hoop that we've jumped through, or certification, or some recognized role in our family. We just feel like, if I'm not, if I don't have this title, if I don't have this degree, if I don't have this certification, or if I don't have, if my family doesn't tell me what I, then we just feel like ourselves. And the problem is we've allowed ourselves to never be enough. Well, I'm, I'm just me. I could never do that. Why? Well, I'm not trained. I could never do that. Why? Well, I don't have a degree. I could never do that. Why? Well, I'm not called. I can never do that. Why? Well, I, I don't. I wasn't. I wasn't raised that way. Well, who are you? Well, I'm. I'm just me, and me's not going to cut it. So we feel that our plain old secular jobs have somehow excluded us from the deeper things in God. Have somehow isolated us. You know. We spend most of, it's no wonder, we spend most of our impressionable years when we're young, smaller, weaker, more uneducated, less experienced. You know what I wonder? I think the question the church has to ask is this. When do people in the church get to move from the kids' table at Thanksgiving to the adult table? When does that happen? Because I'm telling you, it's God's will for it to happen. 
And somewhere in the kingdom, people have got to move into their, their qualification in God. Got to move into the anointing, the, the, um, the calling of God on our life. As God's people, as God people. So many times we take significance by the role that we carry. And we usually, we usually, uh, we usually put the value on something based on how much applause people give us for it or how much people pay us for it. This is important because people pay me a lot to do it. Or this is important because people applaud a lot when I do it. But is that what makes something important? Is that really what makes it matter? We say there's at least one area in my life that I'm not a layperson. You take your car to the mechanic, the mechanic says, I may just be a layperson in the kingdom, but when you drive your car in my shop, I know more about the car you drive than you do. And at least right here, I'm not a layperson. A doctor walks in with a white coat and a clipboard and says, when you walk into this office, I know more about your body than you do. And this clipboard and this coat tells me I do. And while you're in here, I may be a layperson in the kingdom, but right here, I'm not. And we begin to take our identity from that. The English teacher says, I know more about the language you speak than you do. When you walk in here, I might be a layperson in the kingdom, but in here, I'm, I'm an expert. I'm a professional. Transfer that to the kingdom of God and it just doesn't work. There is no hierarchical structure inside the kingdom. There are no professionals. There are no experts in Jesus' family. We're all beginners. And we're all followers. You know why we're all beginners? Because Jesus is the only leader and He won't tell any of us where we're going. Until we need to know. He's the leader. So there are no experts. There are no co-pilots with Jesus up there in the front seat. We're all in the back strapped in our car seat. How did this belief become so deeply rooted in the church? I don't know, because when you read the Bible, you know, when Jesus walked the earth, he went and picked, well, I guess what we call lay people. He picked tax collectors. You can't see anybody from the IRS being an apostle. (laughs) Jesus could. And actually, they were a lot worse off. Than the IRS agents you and I know. They, they were a little short of thieves. But Jesus chose a tax collector and he chose a fisherman. And he chose two brothers and women and, and Paul who made tents. Where do so many Christians get such a self-depreciating idea? Such a self-depreciating opinion. It's not from the Bible. It's not from Jesus. Our culture's lied to us. Our church history's lied to us. And we've lied to ourselves. And you know why we do it? Satan has given us a very spiritual feeling cloak to hide behind in all this inadequacy. You know what Satan has whispered and called it? Humility. I am, well, I couldn't do that because I'm too humble. Well, not if you admit it. I don't know how that works. Satan is a master of taking perfectly good words and using them to tell lies. We have allowed humility 
We've allowed to define humility as inadequacy. I don't feel, I don't feel, you know, prepared. I don't feel ready. I don't, I mean, I'm just me and me's not enough. So I guess what I'll do is take the mask inside the Christian life of humility. I'm so humble. I think that insecurity and and inadequacy are more often mistaken for humility than humility is. One of the sure signs of humility, listen to this, is boldness. Was Jesus humble? It's not a trick question. Was Jesus humble? But he was bold. Be very weary of anyone. Be very weary when you look in the mirror. If you feel that you're looking at someone who's humble, if there's no boldness in your life. Humility gives birth to boldness. Because there's no insecurity in it. I'm not hiding from anything. I'm not covering anything. Humility says, I have a realistic opinion of who I am in Jesus. I neither need to take over and I neither need to run. I can stand. And I can stand in Jesus because I know who he made me to be. In our culture, a layman is someone who's considered an amateur. Who looks from the outside of a subject inside it at a distance because they really don't know what they're doing. I mean, isn't that how we call a a layman, an an apprentice, a, a journeyman? It has a negative connotation. But the Greek word for laity is laos. Some of you, I know, know what that means. The word laos is people. The word laos is just people. In the Greek, in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, You are the chosen laos, the special chosen laos of God. God's special laos. There's no negative connotation in Scripture for laity. The laos of God includes all Christians. Do you know what God's design from Exodus all the way into 1 Peter chapter 2, from the beginning of the end, God's design for His people is that we would become a new prototype of humans. We would follow the second Adam. We would follow in a second way. We would be kingdom people of the future living in the present. God has been anxious to have a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of God people. Congregations of ministers to touch that which he died for and to reach out and to reveal him to that which he loves. You know what? God is so brilliant. Every system we make to try to do better than he did always fails. And maybe one of the reasons for the ineffectiveness of the church across the last 500 years in the world has been a lack of understanding of God people. You know what Jesus said when he came to earth? He said, you know what? I know how to reach the world. I'm going to ordain them all. Why don't you put that in your denominational pipe and smoke it? (laughs) God has a desire. He has has a, a, a mindset, an understanding to commission, ordain, equip, prepare, release Every Christian everywhere. You know what I think America is ripe for? An awakening of God people. An awakening of people who know who they are in God and don't have to wait for any other thing. They know they have access to the throne room and authority to reach out and minister. That's what I think America's ripe for. 
people who take on the, the clothing of the Lord and know how to penetrate this culture with the power and message of the gospel. So what do we need to do? Let's ask God for a revival of God people. People who will go to the marketplace, who will go to their family, who will go to their neighborhood, who will go to their friends, and just dare to take their urgency to God in prayer and believe that they have full access. Nobody needs to approach God for me. Jesus has made the way for me to approach Him directly. I'm going to approach God right on this. And then I'm going to run out of this little closet and I'm going to go in the authority of Christ and I'm going to do what He says to do. God, does it have to be more complicated than that? I've said this to you and I'm going to say it to you till you're ready to not hear it anymore. The church in North America is in a crisis. Uh, you've heard the numbers, you know, maybe 45% or whatever people attend church on a weekly basis. That's not even true. Somewhere around 25 or 27% of Americans are in a worship service this morning. Around a fourth. America is in the greatest free fall from Christianity in its history. It's, it's just nosediving. Uh, we're way past, uh, uh, you may bail out Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, but you're not going to bail out the church like that. You can't just push more into it. The church has to be changed, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. And where that's going to happen, well, go ahead, because that's God's idea. <laughs> I believe it starts in understanding God's will for you. Not for Kingwood, not for your Sunday school class. That'll, that'll follow. It's an overflow. But you have to understand what God's will is for you. For you, just yourself, without your title, without your degree, without your professional skill set, without your job, without whatever you've made a living doing, without all that. Just for you. You are not what you do. You are who God says you are. And you have to come in contact with that. What if you begin to believe that you were God's person for your marriage? God's person for your family. God's person for your children. You were God's person for your workplace. You were God's person uh, in your neighborhood. What if you begin to believe that? That you could pray, you, you, you don't have to, you, you know, we share prayer requests, that's great. That's, the, that's part of the community of faith. But sometimes we use that as a deflection from our responsibility to pray for those things. Is that true? We do. Hey, would you pray for me? Ooh, that boy, that lady right there, she, pray, she can call heaven down. Would you pray for me? Because I don't have time. Well, that's not it, is it? That's to misunderstand who you are in Jesus, isn't it? What you say is, I've been praying my guts out over this. Would you pray for me too? That's good. Man, let unity flow in prayer. Let power flow in prayer. Let people uh, gather around it. But you can't subcontract it. Right? You're not going to hire it out. Sitting there laughing at yourself. I see what you're doing. This morning, uh, let me close with a quick story. Several weeks ago, 
I told you a story, I think, in the God is Love series um, about a man in our church whose son had gotten caught up in a cult. Uh, and he was living a bad life and it had become a tension point between he and his dad, a man who attends our church. And uh, he didn't want to talk about God, about church, about nothing. Didn't, didn't want nothing to do with it ever. If you're going to call me and talk to me, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. If you're going to talk to me about this. And I think I remember saying to you that the dad, I shared this story in one of those messages, the dad said he chose the relationship over the religion. If I can't, if I can't get my son to come to faith, I'm still not going to lose my relationship with my son. He's going to be my son no matter what he does. So, so this man kept reaching out and touching. During worship this morning, that dad came and put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, this weekend, my son came home. 